Thank you guys for being here today. And welcome to those who are online. Thank you for joining us online this morning. Feel free uh, at home, if you're at home, to get your Bible out. While we here take our Bibles out, and uh, we're going to be turning to the passage of Isaiah as we continue our Advent message series. We're in Isaiah, and we'll be looking at chapter 9, the first seven verses. And if you're here, then feel free, if you're at home, if you want to honor the Lord as well, uh, feel free to stand as I read the text aloud to us. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that we're able to even call you Father because of Jesus. We're very grateful for that privilege, that awesome privilege to relate to, relate to you in familial terms, to know that you care for us and that you have our best interests at heart. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be able to stand in Jesus' place, to speak on behalf to Jesus' people. And Lord, I don't take that lightly. I pray that you would help me to not fall to the temptation that often we are tempted with as ministers to preach to be liked by people. But instead, Lord, to preach so that you are honored and that lives are changed. Whether they like me or not, that's not the point. You are the point. So we want to come today acknowledging that so the humanity can be put aside, the flesh can be put aside so that the spirit might reign. We're asking, Father, that your spirit would take a earthen vessel and use it. Your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. But I don't have the ability to wield it. Your spirit does. He can do it. He knows each individual who's in this room today Every person who's tuned in online, you know every circumstance, every thought, every action, every word, every deed, and where their life is headed. And so I'm asking that you do the work of ministry today. Just help me to be a, a aid, a voice, to declare what your word has said, and you do the work. So that if anyone is blessed or benefits today, that they know it wasn't me because I had no idea of what's going on in their life. You talked to them. You spoke to them. And they need to turn and look to you alone. 
We want you to be exalted. We want the name of Jesus to be lifted up because it is because of him that we're here today and him alone. Be with us in this time, Lord, as we gaze upon your eternal word. Challenge us in the precious and powerful name of your son, whom you have shown that you have appointed to rule the world by the fact that you raised him from the dead. It is in his name alone do we make these requests. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Last summer, we had a chance to sit down with our financial advisor, as we do um, by the grace that has been given to us through Living Water for once a year to sit down uh, with the financial team to talk about where our finances are as a family and what direction they're heading. And this year, as he had done in the previous year, shared that we needed to be wise and start to save up money, uh, put money aside, because at some point we were going to have to replace our second car in the future. Now, we had had our car, the second car, and I've told you the story about how the first car went, but this second car, uh, we had had this for 17 years. Uh, and as, as, when he had told me the first year, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm keeping my car. I've tried to do over the years. I've invested money in trying to maintain the car, uh, take care of all the maintenance, replace parts, making sure the car stays in a, a, a great running condition, and it was. And I was planning to try to get, oh, maybe 20 to 22 to 23 years out of the car, uh, you know. We had had it for 17, why not? It's like a kid, you just keep it around. <laughs> you know, you'd already invested all that money. Uh, so, you know, uh, so, I was, so we were working on that, and he was like, you, you need to start being wise, don't be foolish. You know, it, it'd be foolish to know that this expense is coming up, and then for you not to set aside money, knowing that at some point that car is going to have to give out. So I was like, okay, well, I learned from the first car that the best thing to do is when I have life issues is to start to bring them up to God so that he can start to work on those situations. And so that's what I started to do. I started to pray about it. And, you know, of course, as the Lord blessed uh, us to be able to have a little bit extra money here or there, people did things. We were able to start to set aside money. And then one of the first things God did was he touched a, a different family member's heart this time who gave us a substantial amount of income because they knew we were trying to save for a car and decided they wanted to bless us. Not that they're wealthy, they're just frugal people. Uh, and they had some money they wanted to, to be a blessing to us because they have generous hearts. And so they did, and that added to where we were at. And so that put us in a position that we wouldn't have been at uh, had they not given that to us. And so we, the money they gave us and then the money that we had uh, caused me to come into this year with the idea that, hey, listen, it's time to, I think God is on the move. Uh, he's already started to move. And so I, we're going to try to start looking for a car. And so for me, uh, car looking is an entire process. It's not something we do uh, quickly because, as you know, I like to keep my cars for family lengths. Uh, and so when I, when I make a decision, I want to commit to it because I'm going to be with this car a while. Uh, and so I started off the year and I started doing research. First thing I had to learn was how to even buy a used car. Uh, and, of course, I learned some things about how the market had changed with used cars and you know, best way to, to do that. And so that took me, you know, weeks of research. And I also knew that I had the second car that I needed to, you know, this older car uh, that was in great condition and really there was really no need to get rid of it. But if we were going to buy another car, it would be best to, you know, sell that car and then um, take the income to add to our pot of money to expand, you know, what our range of options might be. And so I started praying about that, and I was like, hey, Lord, uh, I need to know what's the best way. What, what is your will for us to, 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 dis, to dismiss with and deal with this car? How do you want us to do that? And so one of the mornings when I was praying and I was on my way to work here, uh, I was praying about that specific thing. It had just risen up in my spirit, and I started to pray about it. And I got to the office, and when I got to the office, someone texted me who had been uh, a member of our church who uh, works with an organization that helps people in need uh, specifically. And that, and that person texted me and said to me, hey, that morning, hey, listen, uh, I'm looking for some used cars. Do you know of anybody who have any used cars to sell? And I was like, I happen to know somebody <laughs> who's trying to sell a used car in great condition. So a few weeks later, I, along with some other things that uh, people we got in contact with, uh, sold those cars, and that was taken off. And so then we took that and put that money into the pot. And of course, then, with this now set limit because of uh, what our church has gone through at FPU, we're just, my family's just committed to not trying to get into debt anymore. We're trying to reduce any debt that we have. Uh, and so my, my goal is to buy cars outright, cash only. Um, 
I, I, I don't want debt in my life. I'm trying to get rid of it. So I had a set amount of money, and I told the Lord, hey, Lord, you, you know what we got to work with. And so I'm going to do my diligence on the human part, do my human responsibility, but there are just some things that I can't control. I'm going to put that in your hands. And so for about six to eight weeks, I started doing research, learning how to buy a used car and looking at the market to see what's available, you know, not just in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Maryland, you know, even looking at Ohio, trying to see what was available around me to figure out um, what we could be able to purchase. Uh, and the price we had, you know, trying to find a good used car, trying to find low mileage, well taken care of, because, you know, uh, we're trying to find something, just a newer version of what I already had, kind of like that kind of idea. Uh, and so that's what we're doing. And in that, of course, whenever you're buying a car, uh, you're not the only one who has interest. When you're married, you have a spouse. <laughs> and they, they, they get to give some say into what kind of car you're going to purchase. And so y'all have to like, when you purchase a house, you got to come together, you got to pool those interests, and they got to work out to all line up on the same car. Because y'all both have interest and they don't always hit the same car. Sometimes they hit different cars. It's the color, it's the shape, it's the size, it's certain things you want to do. And I'm more of the practical guy, and so I even remember having this discussion with my wife. We got into an argument over, one, I was wanting to get this one car and she didn't like the color of the car. And so we, we, you know, we had to let, that lo let it alone. And the Holy Spirit just helped me to restrain myself. <laughs> so anyway, so we finally, after you know, about two months of research uh, and looking into the process, we finally came to a place where we were able to agree upon one specific used car. It was in north of Philadelphia at a, at a dealership just, just north of Philadelphia. So the morning that we were going to uh, go out and purchase the car, because I was going to come to work that day and work half a day, then take, I took the rest of the day off so that I could go out. We could drive to Philadelphia and do it. Well, that morning, as we were getting ready, my wife had to get ready for homeschooling that morning. I was getting ready to go to work, and we were talking in the morning about the car and just the plans for the day. And I told my wife that morning, I said to her, just, you, you know, just, I don't know, I was just being crazy at the moment. I said to her, wouldn't it be crazy if God, before the end of today, blessed us to get a brand new car for the price of a used car. I said, you have to slap me and call me crazy. <laughs> and my wife smiled and she laughed and she said, boy, stop dreaming. <laughs> now, you know that's not going to happen. We're going to go out here and buy this used car and we're going to be satisfied with that and move on with our lives. And I was like, okay. Okay. So the morning, just to be wise, I was like, hey, let me check to make sure the car's still there. They didn't sell it last night. Then I drive out to Philadelphia, be foolish as a husband, drive us all the way out to Philadelphia and be like, you didn't even check. We didn't drove all this way. <laughs> so came to work. And uh, while I was checking that morning, uh, I looked on the Internet and there was a car that appeared, but it was down towards uh, right, right, just right north of uh, Washington, D.C., uh, that appeared that had not appeared in any search that I had done with the same criteria. It had just popped up. It was a new car we had never seen. It was a newer version of the used car we were looking at with lower miles and about the same price range. So I told my wife, hey, why don't you call the dealership to see? Because this is like we've never seen this car before in all of our searches for the last eight weeks. This, this must have been recently posted. Can, can you check on it and see? Because if that deal, we should go check on that deal instead if they have it instead of this one, the one we had landed on. And so, you know, I went to work. And when I got here and stuff like that, and so then my wife called me and she was like, hey, to give me an update on what happened. And what had happened was that um, she had called the dealership, and when she called the dealership, the, the, rep, the rep that she was talking to looked for the car that was posted online. He said, hey, I cannot find this car. We don't have this car. And she was like, but look, it's right here. It's posted on your website that you have this car. And so uh, he was like, well, look, I got to do some research. I don't know what's going on. Let me check, get back with you in about an hour or so. And so some time passed, and he ended up calling her back, and he said to her, hey, listen, I did check. Here's what happened. We posted the car yesterday online. Somebody saw it. They came to the dealership last night and bought the car last night. That's why we don't have it. The website had just not been updated yet to reflect that the car had been sold in one day. And you just kind of think to yourself at that moment, perhaps we just go on, that, that just means we're going to go in the other direction. But it was the thing that he said next, which was surprising. 
He said, I realized that, um, that we sold this car last night. And do you mind if I make you an offer right now? She said, well, what is the offer? What do you want to make me? He said, listen, how about I sell you a brand new 2021, but for $500 less than the price of the used car that you wanted to buy? Would you be willing to take that deal, but you have to take it today? My wife is driving a new car. Last week, Pastor Mike shared with us the historical situation that forms the background to the text that we've been looking at in Isaiah. It is a time in the, in the, world of, the history of the world of kings and conquests and in Israel's history where the kingdom has been divided. There had been a, a civil rebellion. They had had, well, not a civil war. They had just rebelled. The ten tribes to the north had left and formed a new nation called Israel. And it happened to be ruled by several different families from the people of Israel, while the kingdom in the south, the two tribes remained with the heirs of David. And so now they had been divided, and this had gone on now, had been some several hundreds of years. And at this point, we find that one of David's descendants is on the throne of Judah by the name of Ahaz. And at this time, he is at a point of war. And as Pastor Mike told us, why was that the case? Because Ahaz refused to join an alliance. Israel, their sister nation, and Syria, their neighbor, who were vassals to the greater power in the region, Assyria, decided that they wanted to rebel. They were tired of being servants. They were tired of paying tribute or taxes to a, another kingdom. And they thought that if they could unite together, they could fight a war and free themselves. It's a pattern that we see throughout history. We see it with Britain and with India. It just repeats itself. Those who've been subjugated want freedom, and so they try to join forces to obtain that freedom by military might. And so the proposal was, hey, listen, if the three of us get together, we might be able to do something. But Ahaz was unwilling. He was like, look, yeah, we're not going to do that. I'm not taking what we have and using our resources to go fight Assyria. We're just not going to do it. Not happening. And so Syria and Israel said, well, listen, if you don't want to fight with us, then you're going to fight us. So what they said was, listen, we're going to come. And our goal is ultimately, if you don't want to do it, we'll come in your neighborhood. We'll kick you off the throne and we'll get somebody else who does want to help us. And we'll put him on the throne. And they had their idea about who they wanted to do that. And so Ahaz is at a point of war. He's at a point where he is being threatened in his kingdom and his rule. And ultimately, most likely they weren't going to just replace him by just removing him. It probably uh, entailed death for him. And it's into this situation, this political situation that's going on into which Isaiah, the prophet, shows up. And we can understand from a human perspective, just simply looking at it from a human perspective of what's going on as Ahaz is a leader of a nation who is facing war with troops that have come across the border and set up battle lines and are ready to attack. And you're trying to get your forces together and make sure that you have the resources for warfare where he was at. He's probably had talks with his generals about how what the war effort's going to look like. And, and, and they've talked about what they have and resources and amount of men for war and what kind of battle strategy might, they may look like and how things might turn out as we later know and find out from Chronicles and Kings that uh, Judah is going to suffer some substantial losses uh, in this war effort with Syria and Israel. And then on the other hand, you had this guy just show up named Isaiah and he says to you with no proof, hey, listen, you ought to trust God to save you from all those forces that have crossed over into the land. Why don't you do that instead of worrying about the military stuff? Now, you got to imagine Ahaz as a leader. you got a guy over here saying, trust God, and you got enemies on your doorstep. You could understand the dilemma that he's in as a human being, a national leader, and where he is in context. And God realizes that. God knows the situation that Ahaz is in. He knows that Ahaz has not been the most faithful of leaders because Ahaz, as we know from Kings and Chronicles, has been an idolater. He's introduced some idol worship and 
he's not been really devoted to the Lord like his father David had been. And so God does something for him that he had done for Gideon. He says, you know what? Why don't I give you a sign? But today I'm going to do something different. I'm going to I'm 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 give you a blank check. You tell me what it is that you want to happen, and I'm going to do it. It doesn't even have to be in the realm of human possibility. It could be something way outside of the realm of human possibility, and I'll still do it. And Ahaz feigns loyalty and says, oh, I don't want to test God. No, thank you. Don't, 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 need, don't need a sign from God to trust him. No, no, I, I got it worked out over here. We're going to get it worked out with human methods. And ultimately, what we see that plays out in Ahaz's life is ultimately he decides not to trust the God that he can't see, but to trust in the political alliance that he can see. As a result of that, God says to Ahaz, look, brother, you don't want a sign? I'm still giving you a sign. But let me tell you the sign I'm going to give you, and it has to do with this child. And then he says, on top of that, because you were looking to Assyria to deliver you, that's going to become the form of judgment for Judah. So now you've got Assyria becoming a judgment, despite the fact because there is a people and the king who has rejected God. One of the things, the first things we see in this text that comes and begins to stand out to us is this idea that begins to arise, which is if we're going to see God's deliverance, we must put our trust in God. But God then, when he gets to chapter 9, is we find the same kind of idea repeated where God acts in kindness and promises deliverance to a people who are not looking for it and not looking to him to ask him for help. But God, because of his great kindness, decides that he's going to promise deliverance when the people don't deserve it. They're not asking for it. They rejected him. They rejected his counsel. And they're going to decide to depend upon human effort to rescue themselves. And yes, in the midst of that, God says, I'm still going to do something good for you. And not just for Judah, but also for Israel. And that brings us to chapter 9, verse 1. Let's reread the first five verses and we'll try to unpack those together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness and on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So we first start off when we encounter this text, this language about darkness and gloom, and that doesn't sound pleasant. So what what might the Lord be getting at here? Well, the idea does not arise in chapter 9. That chapter division doesn't separate the concepts. Isaiah's already been addressing this idea previously in chapter 8. If you look back there, you can see at the end of chapter 8 that this idea arises. See, due to the negative events of war and the uncertainty of what life would look like in the future had Syria and Israel come in and overtake Judah, how that might change life and how life might not look the same anymore for those living in Judah brought fear to the people. And so one of the things that we find out about the people is that when they're in distress and they're uncertain about future events going on in their nation, one of the first things they start to cry out is conspiracy. And everybody's looking for a conspiracy. And there's a variety of ones that are named, but they're all counting because they don't understand the unfolding events in their nations, so everything becomes a conspiracy. But God says in the midst of this to Isaiah, his faithful prophet, and to his disciples, those who had believed Isaiah and were trying to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of them, he says to them, hey, listen, while the rest of the nation is running around crazy and afraid and looking for conspiracies under every rock, don't you do that. 
Don't be like them. They're looking for conspiracies because ultimately they're afraid because their trust rests in something other than me. What you need to do instead is to honor me and fear me. Instead of being afraid of what's happening in the world around you. If a God, the way that he wanted his people to honor him was to treat him as the most significant thing and significant person in their existence, not the circumstances that they were unsure about that was happening around them in the nation. Because for the people of God who are supposed to be faithful to God, to treat him in any other way is to treat him as insignificant or as if he is helpless to control the affairs of the world in which we live. I like what Dr. Oswald said about this text. He said this, and I thought this was a, a profound thought. He says, how easy it is when situations go against us to become paranoid and react accordingly. Isaiah challenges his people to reject paranoia and see God's hand in the events of their time. To refuse to do so is to become more and more fearful, more and more unstable, for it means that our lives are ultimately in the hands of unknown powers. Too devious for us to know or control. This in turn leads us toward the occult in an effort to gain control over these unknown and devious powers. In another place, he writes something similar. He says, unlike his contemporaries, Isaiah should not be spending time creating fanciful, unfounded explanations of what is really going on arising out of terror of uncontrollable events. Instead, he should focus his attention on serving and pleasing the God in whose hands our destinies reside. Not fear, but faith. So in my first year of undergrad, I entered college at the University of Oklahoma, and I was there, and I was entering the College of Engineering. And one of the programs they had to help us who were entering the College of Engineering was to uh, put us in these little groups and give us a mentor, either a junior or senior into College of Engineering, to kind of help us navigate our, um, you know, entrance in first year and to be able to uh, hopefully pursue success, you know, depending on how that would work out, if we were really meant for engineering or not. And so one of my best friends, uh, who I got to be really get to know and became a best friend of mine, he and I were both in the College of Engineering at that time, and uh, we became really close to our specific mentor who was over our group of engineering students. Uh, and she became like an older sister. So we spent a lot of time hanging out with her, asking her for advice, talking about school, talking about life, just talking about relationships, all that kind of stuff. And I remember on one occasion we were over hanging, at our, hanging out in the house with a couple of students, and I, I don't remember the discussion that brought about the events that happened. But whatever the question we were asking, she went over and pulled out from her magazines as we were talking, I think, about something related to the future. And she pulled out this magazine and she opened it up. And she started showing us that what she did sometimes was to read horoscopes to give her some advice and counsel about the future. Now, what you need to know is that she went to church. She heard about God. She believed in God. But when it came time to consult and find advice for the future, what she came home and did was open up her magazine and flipped and read the horoscopes. But because her trust wasn't in God, it was in the horoscopes. See, when we don't rely on God and his word to guide us, we will rely on something or someone else. And so we see the same thing happening at the end of chapter 8 in Isaiah his time. They had refused God and his word. They didn't want to run to God to get counsel about life in the world, about how to trust God for the future. So what did they turn to? Occult practices. They said, hey, listen, we're going to seek the counsel of the dead on behalf of the living. And we're going to go and consult the spirits and see if the spirits can tell us anything instead of coming to God and his faithful word and trusting him. So as a result of that, and God forbids Isaiah and those who are following him to do that kind of thing. He says, in that case, when they come to you and tell you you ought to consult the spirits, you run that at that point to God and to his word. But because the people had chosen to forsake God, what happened is they end up with spiritual darkness and blindness. So that when they look out at the circumstances of the world, all they see is a dark and gloomy situation. That's where the dark and the gloom come in. See, God is light and his word is light. And if you abandon the light, then all you're left with is 
and darkness and gloom. One of the other things that he says that happens with the people is because they're locked in a view of darkness and gloom because they've abandoned God and his word for how to understand the world around them, then what do they do when things don't look good in their situation? They first begin to blame their political leaders and then they blame God because life is hard. And it's into this situation that God speaks this gracious word of promise for deliverance. Where there had been spiritual and circumstantial darkness because God's people had forsaken him, God would, in the place of darkness at some point, bring light. What's interesting about this is the very first place that God says is going to experience his judgment is the first place he's going to start, to start at, to reveal this great light. Now, the light here most likely in context is referring to the revelation of God, his will, and his delivering power. But if you notice in the promise, no time frame is given for when God is going to fulfill this promise. And so one of the ideas we began to draw from this is that God is going to do his things in his time and not on their time table. Now, notice what he promises in the text. Here are some of the things that we see that he promises here in the first five verses. He promises to give them joy as when they're drawing in the harvest or after a person has been victorious in battle. And the reason why the people are going to have an atmosphere of joy is because God is going to give them freedom. He's going to free them from oppression. As he had done in the past, in the times of the judges, what he had done with Gideon. And Gideon, of course, brings to mind God's miraculous deliverance where God had reduced down the army to 300 men with jars, trumpets, and torches. And he used that to start the victory over the entire Midianite army. He didn't need much. He took a little and did a great deliverance. And so would be the case in this case. He would take a little and do a great deal with it. And as part of that, the promise ultimately ends with, hey, there is coming a point in which God is going to bring all war to an end. So what is, what is he getting at with this idea of oppression here? I thought Dr. Oswald here again brings something insightful. And he wrote this back in 1986. Listen to what he says about the oppression in this text and, and the proper interpretation. He says two, two extremes are to be avoided here. One extreme is to take the way that the Christian church has often taken, saying that true bondage is to personal sin from which Christ frees us and thus turning a blind eye on actual physical oppression. The other extreme way is the way of certain forms of liberation theology that seems to suggest that the only sin is the sin of political oppression and that Christ's only purpose in coming was to give human beings political freedom. Neither extreme is adequate in itself. To make God's promises primarily political is to overlook the profound insight of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. That the chief reason for absence of shalom, that is harmonious relationships among human beings, is the absence of shalom between God and human beings through sin. But without shalom between human persons, freedom cannot long exist. But to act as if the forgiveness of sin and the consequent personal relationship are all that matters is to succumb to a platonic distinction of existence into a real spiritual world and an unreal physical world, a distinction which is thoroughly unbiblical. The Messiah lifts the yoke of sin in order to lift the yoke of oppression. Now, how does God plan to fulfill this promise to free his people from oppression, to bring in lasting peace and to change an atmosphere from despair, to bring light where there had been spiritual darkness? We find it in the final two verses, verses six and seven. It's going to be exactly what he had talked about earlier in chapter seven. He's going to do it through the birth of a specific child. Let's revisit verses six and seven together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It will be through the promised child. A child who will ultimately, as Isaiah pictures him here in this prophecy, is an ideal king in contrast to the king, the son of David, who's sitting on the throne at the present time, Ahaz. Now, the text doesn't use the title king for him, but we can infer it from the things that are said about him. Look back at the text and notice what's said about him. The government will rest on his shoulders. His governmental rule will usher in an era of unending peace, and it will expand so as to encompass the world. He will set up and reign over the throne of David and his kingdom, and he will rule in the way that God had intended for the sons of David to rule where their laws and their decrees will be based on justice and righteousness. And his rule will be a lasting rule. But we also see by the titles given to this king that he's going to be unique and different than any other king that has been from the line of David in this birth announcement. So let me walk you through these titles quickly. In the first, we find the first title, Wonderful Counselor. The Net Bible translators say that this refers to a king's ability to devise military strategy in light of the second title that is used. And the reason that this king will be a, which they translate as extra, uh, extraordinary strategist, the reason he'll be so good at military strategy, as we'll see later, as unfolded in chapter 11, we'll talk about that next week, is because he is dependent upon and endowed with God's spirit, and ultimately his counsel is not his own, but it comes from sourced in God. And that's why every counsel that he gives succeeds, and nothing he says will be wrong, because he's empowered by the spirit of God. The second title we see in the text is Mighty God. It could also be translated as a sentence. God is mighty, or God is a warrior. Now, the title in itself does not apply or imply divinity. However, because in chapter 10, verse 21, Isaiah takes that same title, the exact same words, and applies it to God himself. We know because he takes the title that belongs to God and applies it to this child that something else is going on in this text. This child is going to be so closely related to God, it seems to be pushing in the direction of divinity. The next title, Everlasting Father, and the Bible proves helpful here again. So Father, in its original context during this time, was a title that was used as we look at some other ancient Near Eastern sources to describe the one who was the leader, the king of the nation. And he was viewed as a protector of his people, so he was called the father of the people. But notice what Elsa said, it's an everlasting father. Now here in Isaiah's context, most likely the way they would have interpreted that, because this title was used in talking of two kings, and this idea was to have a, a, a long reign or to have a, a, an enduring dynasty. But we ultimately know God is going to fulfill that in a much more literal way. Finally, we find the title Prince of Peace. So the idea of the king was to bring an end to war and to secure prosperity for the people that he ruled. This king will do that. That Bible's notes here, I think, are helpful again. It says the translator's notes. This title pictures the king as the one who establishes a safe socioeconomic environment for his people. It hardly depicts him as a meek individual, for he establishes peace by the previous titles through military strength. His people experience safety and prosperity because their invincible king destroys their enemies. You see similar thoughts in Psalm 72 and Psalm 144. So the question then becomes, who is this child that is going to do all these great things that God has promised? Well, we can confidently say that Isaiah has no idea who the child is and nor does his disciples. There's probably a near reference and fulfillment in some aspect, but here the ultimate fulfillment comes some 700 years after Isaiah. And of course, we're reminded again that God keeps his promises on his timetable 
and not ours. But he always keeps his promises. That's what verse 7 at the end is getting at, that God is passionately committed to his people. So it's not until we get to the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament who experienced the life of Jesus are able to reflect on what Isaiah said some 700 years before and disclose his identity so that the world understands that this Jesus who is from Nazareth, the son of Mary, is the promised child that Isaiah had spoken about some 700 years before. How do we know that they thought that about him? Listen to what they said about him. One, Luke records what the angel, that reliable witness Gabriel says about Jesus, about his birth. Notice what the text says, Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign of the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sound familiar to you? We see this also thing appear in his ministry, during his ministry, when Matthew reflects on where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry and why he did it in the place that he did it. Listen to what Matthew writes about him. He says, now when he had heard, that is Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christ is the great light where God reveals himself, his will, and his delivering power. But what about those promises of oppression and the ending of war? Because we've had a whole lot of wars and oppression since Jesus came and left. That seems to be left undone. Well, it seems the way that God is unfolding his plan is that Jesus is accomplishing God's purpose in a two-stage process. Two-stage process. We see this alluded to, Pastor Mike this week was at a funeral, brought this to mind as he shared this text at a funeral from one of our Christian brothers who had passed away this week, and he shared this text, and I said, that's it, right there. Listen to what he says from Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In his first advent, that which we celebrate during this holiday season, he came to overcome the greatest oppression that humanity faces, slavery to sin that keeps us from being in relationship with God. But in the second stage, in his second advent, he will deliver his people from the powers of evil that rule over the present age. And he will at that time usher in a lasting peace. What the world is longing for. Now, how do we make sure that we're part of the people of God to receive this deliverance that comes only through Jesus? Well, Pastor Mike told us the answer last week when Isaiah brought the message to Ahaz. He said to Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or as the writer of Hebrews put it, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But faith always has an object. I told you a story about a friend of mine who had had faith, but it was in horoscopes, though she had heard about God. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, to the Father except through me. Jesus seemed to think that he was to be the object of faith if you were to trust in God. And as the writers of the New Testament laid out, as we've been studying in the book of Romans, it is by having faith in Jesus that God places us into the people of God so that the promises of deliverance, of deliverance become true for us. Because without Jesus, there's no access to the good promises 
of God. So these promises that God gives bring to us a warning and a word of hope. By way of warning, we are reminded that to look for guidance or to try to make sense of life apart from God and his word is ultimately going to end in you walking in spiritual darkness. You're going to experience frustration and anger as you look out on the world and as uh, the events of the life start to unfold and you're not able to control them. Because as the Bible testifies, salvation is of the Lord. So reading horoscopes, going to your local palm reader, be it at a mall, tarot card reading, seances, or any other means of trying to seek guidance about the future, about your life, apart from God and his word, darkness and gloom to you. That's what it'll be. Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But there's something else this text bid us to be warned about. The same is true for those who put their faith in political leaders and the military might of their nation. If that is the way that you have put your trust, then you are in a dangerous place as the person who says that you're following God. This text warns us that no military leader, no political power strategist is worthy of your trust. Don't depend on the arm of flesh, but depend on the everlasting arms of God, that's where your trust ought to reside. Because as long as you're looking to political leaders to be your savior, military might of a nation to be your savior, and that's what you're truly counting on despite what you hear at church and you say you love God and all that, but at home what you're really looking at is who's gonna save you by being in office, then your trust has been misplaced. Notice what the text says. The one who's going to bring in usher in peace that's been appointed by God as has been disclosed in history is none other than Jesus. So if Jesus is the one that God has appointed to bring world peace and he's the only one that's going to do it, then it doesn't matter who else gets in office. It's never going to happen. And until he arrives, there will always be war and injustice because he's the only one who can deal with the world and bring in true peace. There will be times, perhaps, of false peace, but it won't ever be the true peace that will last because God's not sitting on the throne and ruling with justice and righteousness. But there's not just a cosmic aspect to this. There's a personal level aspect for us as believers that we ought to put our trust in God for the daily affairs of life. You know, as I was thinking about this, it it just struck me. Look, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that I am claiming that I trust that when I die, as we had a funeral this week, and my body is laid out in a casket, That at some point in the future, even if my body deteriorates and returns to dust, that at some point in the future, God is going to reverse that, bring me back to life, put me back into a new body, and I will live again. I'm claiming that I believe that God has the power to raise the dead because he raised Jesus from the dead. And I'm also claiming that I believe that on the day when God holds all men accountable, on that day I'll be acquitted, not because of works or keeping the law, but because I have simply trusted in his son. Now, that's what I'm claiming as a Christian. And if I'm claiming that God has the power to raise the dead, then why can't I trust God for the little things of everyday life? Brothers and sisters, are you trusting God for your car purchases? Are you trusting God in your marriage? Are you trusting God with the difficulties on your job? Are you trusting God for the salvation of your children? Are you trusting God with your health situation? Are you trusting God for retirement? Are you trusting God with your future? Or have you taken it into your own hand and you're relying upon your human effort to secure your future? See, the text reminds us that God is firmly and passionately committed to his people. You've got faith in son, in his son. You're one of his people. See, Christmas is a wonderful time each year to rejoice because this season is the reminder that God has already accomplished the first part of the deliverance that he promised through Isaiah. Already been done. 
And because God has already accomplished that, he will keep the second part of the promise. Despite how much time it takes to get to his decreed timetable for bringing that about in human history. But the only way that you and I will find joy in these promises of God is that our trust has to be in God and his plans for how the world is going to unfold. If our trust is not in God, then none of this news is going to bring you joy because your trust is in someplace else, and that's what you're looking to, to bring you joy. But if your trust is firmly in God, then you can have joy despite whatever's going on in the nation because you know that the affairs of history rest in his hands. See, God will deliver his people, but one of the things that his people must realize is that God will do it in the choosing of his own timetable, and he will do it in the way that he decrees that is the right way. As I've shared several times over the course of me being here and preaching from the front, that this time of the year is both a time of joy and a time of sorrow for my particular family. See, as we get ready for Christmas, there is a day in this month on the 15th, and this year we'll be celebrating it, the sixth anniversary of my father-in-law's passing. So always as we approach Christmas, it is at this time of year that we remember that my father-in-law, though he battled cancer, did not win that battle, and he lost now, it's not that prayers were not offered to God for deliverance. And what I meant by deliverance or what we meant by deliverance at the time was, God, I want you to reverse cancer, heal him, cause the cancer to go in remission, extend his life on planet Earth. We made the request to the king who rules, who extends life at his pleasure. And God said, no. How do I know that? Because he died. But what is the hope of the New Testament? It wasn't no in the sense of, hey, I'm not going to do anything. It was no, I don't want to deliver him that way. I'm going to deliver him through resurrection. That's what the answer is. Why do I know that? Because he died with faith in Jesus. And because he died with faith in Jesus, I know that the deliverance is coming one day when he will hear the voice of the Son of God, and he will be called out of his grave. And because we both possess faith in Jesus Christ, we'll be reunited together again, never ever to be separated. Brothers and sisters, this season is a reminder that God delivers his people. The question is, where is your trust this season? If it's in, in God, then you can have joy because he will deliver you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for a reminder this Christmas season, Lord. You're the one that we ought to look to. So oftentimes, and I'm guilty myself, Lord, of looking around to humans, to trying to depend upon the arm of flesh, to secure the uncontrollable events that uh, look like they're in control of the reality in which we face, and they have some control. But as Jesus reminded us as he stood before Pilate, who said, don't you know I have the authority, he said, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from heaven. All that transpires on this earth is under your sovereign rule. So the one that we need to fear, the one that we need to honor, the one that we need to be most concerned with is you. Help us to direct our attention to serving and pleasing you and trusting that you'll manage the affairs of the world around us to achieve your ends and our good for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And Lord,